Well, good morning, everybody in this sanctuary and online. We're so glad that you're with us this morning, and what a special treat that we have today. I can tell you about Max Lucado and all of the accolades, the awards, the number of books that he has written and published and sold, but I'd rather begin in a more personal portion of the journey. I want you to imagine me as a sophomore in high school. I've recently come back to trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And a friend of mine from a Bible study that I'm in hands me the first ever Christian book that I read that wasn't the Bible. It was by Max Lucado, and its title was No Wonder They Call Him Savior. It nourished my soul, and I was like, where can I get more of this? And so I went to a little Christian bookstore that was just north of Trinity University in San Antonio where I was serving, and I found that there was other Max Lucado books and picked up the next one, Six Hours, One Friday. And it continued to read, and I tried to do my best count. And Max, my best count is that if I count children's books, I think I've read 30 of your books. And so over the course of the decades, Max has been a guide and a friend for me in faith. And one of the things and, uh, that I think that this would make Max's heart sing is that Max sees what he does is writing books for people who don't like to read books. And so Max was the gateway drug for me reading Christian books <laughs> and got me started from there to join into a life of faith. And so I can commend the, not only the author that you have this morning, but as a college student, I got to go visit his church a long many decades ago. And he's a faithful pastor, and he's become over the decades a friend. Can we give a great Peachtree welcome to Max Lucado? God bless you, Max. Give him heaven. I love your pastor. You know, hey, there you go. It's, um, it's not uncommon to meet a pastor who has remarkable leadership capacity. It's not uncommon to meet a pastor who has a heart full of compassion. But it's rare to meet one who has both. And that's what you have. He is a wonderful man. And you are blessed, I know you know that. And I believe any pastor who has served during a pandemic deserves hazard pay. <laughs> so God bless you and God bless all of you who are watching online. I, I bring you greetings from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, and my church where I've served uh, since 1988, they are so happy when I travel. I mean, they are so tired of me. Uh, I just keep showing up. Uh, they've been telling me lately that as I get older, my sermons are getting too long. In fact, just two or three weeks ago, right in the middle of one of my sermons, a gentleman stood up and started walking out. Can you believe that? I stopped everything. I, I, said, I said, sir... Where are you going? He said, well, I'm going to go get a haircut. 
I, I said, well, why didn't you get one before you came in? He said, I didn't need one before I came in. <laughs> We're not too bright down there in South Texas. Uh, by the way, why did you have to beat us in the World Series? What? 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 Well, that's just not hospitable. We're not too bright down there. A few years ago, I mentioned to the church on a Sunday morning like this, I said, I won't be able to stay around after the service. I'm, I'm going to Manhattan, and I've got to get out and get, on a, get over to the airport and, and leave. And so, uh, true to my word, I, I hurried out after the service. I was racing through the parking lot, and one of our members, a dear lady, stopped me in the parking lot. She said, did you say you're going to Manhattan? I said, I did. She said, could you say hello to my son while you're there? And I said, well, it's a short trip, but give me his contact information and maybe I can. And she said, that's the problem. We've lost contact with him. We don't know where he is. We just know he's somewhere in Manhattan. And I'm thinking maybe you'll just run into him. I said, that just won't happen. This is a big city. You just don't bump into somebody. She said, you never know. You might be at a restaurant. You might be walking down the sidewalk. His name is John Dunn. Keep an eye out for John Dunn. I said, I'm not just going to run in to John Dunn. She said, you never know. Well, wouldn't you know? <laughs> the next day, I'm walking down one of the big avenues. I, I saw a tall building and over the entrance to the building the words in block letters done and Bradstreet <laughs> could it be so I walked in thinking maybe I had found her son I went right up to the receptionist and I said ma'am can you tell me do you have a John here <laughs> she said yes we do down the hall first door to the right so I hurried down the hall, I walked in, and a gentleman was just stepping out of the stall. I said, sir, are you done? <laughs> he said, I am. I said, then call your mother. <laughs> you just never know when things are going to come together, do you? I know, that was a dumb joke. When I was 12 years of age, I took on a summer responsibility of managing the houses of vacationing neighbors. It was their idea, it wasn't mine. Three families that lived side by side by side were going on a vacation together for a month. And they needed somebody to watch over their property, to cut the grass, tend the gardens, feed the pets, check the doors, just keep an eye on things. They asked me to, really they didn't ask me, they asked my dad to ask me to take on the job, and my dad didn't ask me. He told me that I was going to do that. I, boy, boy, I objected. I said, Dad, I've got things to do. I've got Little League games. I've got a bicycle to ride. And those are the only two things I could come up with. And I got no traction. 
So next thing I knew, I was sitting with each of these families, one at a time, making a list of all the things that I needed to do to take care of their homes. And I recall walking from their homes back to my house, little West Texas town, just feeling overwhelmed, overwhelmed. Now, forgive me. That weight is nothing compared to what you're feeling, I know. But remember, I was 12 years of age, and I had three houses to watch over to cut grass, feed pets, and make sure the doors were locked for a month. I mean, one family had a goldfish. I'd never fed a goldfish. What if I underfed or overfed the fish? I could just imagine the poor little thing being dead because of my lack of care. I was overwhelmed but there was no getting out now on the first day of my unsolicited career I jumped on my bike right after baseball practice and I pedaled in the direction of those three houses three sets of locks needed checking three families pets needed feeding three gardens needed watering it was too much for any one human being to handle and just when I was about to learn the meaning of the phrase panic attack, that's when I saw it. Big, muddy, fresh off a day of work in the oil field, my dad's pickup truck parked in front of the center house. And that's when I saw him. He had already opened the garage door, had the lawnmower out, was about to start it up. He yelled at me, I'll cut the grass, you water the gardens, we'll get this done. And just like that, my attitude changed because I realized that though he had given me the assignment, he was now ready to help me fulfill it. He had gone ahead of me. Would you give me 20 minutes to try to convince you that you have a heavenly father who is going ahead of you? He's already in your Monday. He's already solving problems at the end of this year. He is unbound by time and he is committed to you. And you have assignments for sure, but you do not have to face them alone. Boy, it's been a tough 18 months. Not just the pandemic, that would have been enough. But then the political tension, the struggles over racial issues, and then add into that your own personal challenges. You know, tough times can take their toll on us. It seems to me like the whole country is dealing with some type of PTSD. We're just beat up. We're beat up. But you know, tough times, while they can make us bitter, they can also make our faith deeper. They can call upon us to deepen our relationship with God and turn into Him. Some people become cynical and fearful, but others find a depth of wealth of faith that they never knew existed. 
and to help us understand how this happens. The Bible gives us just one of the most delightful nine-chapter books tucked away in the Old Testament, and I'm on a crusade to reacquaint people with what I think is the great story of God's gracious sovereignty in Scripture. The book of Esther. Now we have to flip back in history to 5th century B.C. Persia. Persia was an immense empire of its day. Take the United States landmass, double it, and you're getting close to the size of ancient Persia. One out of every four person on people on the planet lived in Persia in 5th century B.C. And the book introduces us to four delightful characters. First, there's the king of Persia. His Hebrew name is Ahasuerus, which to me sounds like a good sneeze. Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus. I, call, I like to use the Persian name Xerxes because it's got two X's in it. It's fun to say. King Xerxes. Xerxes was big on drinking, not much on thinking. There's not much in the book attributed to him that's worthy of emulation. His right-hand man is an anti-Semitic, bloodthirsty fella by the name of Haman. You can remember that name. It's close to Hangman. And this Haman was all about death. And catch him and the king in a flippant mood, and they would de declare a holocaust, which is exactly what they did. One of the nobles in the king's court was a man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai was mortified when he heard about the Holocaust. Why? Because he was a closet Jew. Yeah, he served the king having never revealed his Jewish ancestry. And not only had he kept his Jewish ancestry a secret, he convinced his niece to do the same, and boy was she a Hollywood head-turner. She was so beautiful that she was selected out of all of the girls in Persia to serve as the queen for Xerxes. But she too kept her Jewish identity a secret. How can you serve the king, sleep with the king, never tell the king that you're Jewish? They did. Until the decree came that every person had to bow down when, Mordecai, when Haman passed. Mordecai would not. He refused to bow. Then the secret was out. And from one day to the next, because he refused to bow, he was kicked out of the court. And he became a man wailing, covering himself with sackcloth and ashes, begging God for help because his people were about to be destroyed. And when Queen Esther got word of Mordecai's behavior, she sent him some clothes. She said, get your act together. You're going to ruin this gig that we have going. Everybody's going to find out our ancestry. And he responded with some words that deserve to be memorized and pondered. Esther chapter 4 and verse 13. He said to her, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance 
for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai's message is a one-two punch. First of all, it's a call to faith. He said, relief will come. Relief will come. How did he know? Somehow Mordecai dug deep into his faith and he remembered the faithfulness of God. Maybe he remembered some of these promises that he had grown up hearing. That God would be their God and God would be their people. That he would gather the people from all the countries. That he would send them a king to establish an eternal kingdom. Um, Mordecai recalled all the promises he had heard growing up on his mama's knee. Maybe he remembered the story of Moses in the Red Sea or David and Goliath. Maybe he remembered how God was undefeated in battle and he determined in that time of crisis to stand upon the covenants of God. Can I beg you to do the same? Do not build your life upon the consequences of life. Do not build your life upon the declarations that come from the media or the social media feeds. Build a life on the covenants of God. Hear me, please. Relief will come. Relief will come. This is Mordecai's message for Esther, and this is God's message to you today. Are you feeling undone by your struggle? Then let God unleash the power within you to face it. Shift your focus away from the struggle and ponder the power of your almighty God. You remember, don't you, the question God asked Abraham and Sarah? He promised them a son, and they were both well past childbearing age. And Sarah laughed at the thought of bouncing a newborn on her bony knee. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Watch this. Why did she say, I'm too old to have a baby? Here it comes. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the question we have to ask. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Does he ever stand up and walk away and say, Oh, Locato just asked me for something I cannot provide. That request is too great. The answer, the welcome answer is no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. You must start here, my friend. Do not measure the height of the mountain. Ponder instead the power of the one who made it. Your problem is not that your problem is so big, but that your view of God grows too small. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Accept the invitation of the psalmist. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together i'm not too bright but i know that when you hold a magnifying glass over something it grows larger our tendency is when we have problems to focus on the problems and let them grow larger right we meditate on our mess rather than meditate on our master 
Sometimes I wonder if the church, universal, has forgotten the vastness of God. I was ordained in 79, so I've been doing this quite a while. Been in a lot of different churches. I love churches, but sometimes I wonder if we know the one before whom we are gathering. Have we forgotten? Visit a congregation on a given Sunday and you'll likely find a group of people sitting in comfortable chairs listening to a comforting message about a God who keeps us comfortable. But do we understand that demons fear and flee at the sound of the name we have come to confess today? Do we understand that angels have been singing holy, holy, holy since the dawn of their creation and they haven't sung it enough? Do we understand that a glimpse of God's glory caused Isaiah the prophet to beg for grace and Moses the patriarch to duck under a rock? Do we understand him before whom we gather? Sometimes I think if we really understood the one before whom we have come to stand today, we would dress in body armor and helmets. Are we suffering from a loss of awe? And if so, what are the consequences? Here's what I think. A wimpy God makes for a wimpy heart. But a great God makes for a solid saint. Let him be big. Relief will come, Mordecai declared. Not because he knew how, but because he knew who. Let him be big. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Moses announced, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? David said, Who in the heavens can be compared with the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is likened unto the Lord? Or this declaration from the book of Job But ask the animals, and they will teach you. Ask the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Speak to the earth, it will teach you. Let the fish of the sea tell you. Every one of these knows that the hand of the Lord has done this. The life of every creature and the breath of all the people are in God's hands. The next time you feel the weight of the world, just talk to the one who made the world. As your perception and understanding of God grows larger, your perception and understanding of your problems will grow smaller. In the book of Esther, God comes and he reverses an edict that would have destroyed all of God's people. If God can turn the mind and opinion of a Persian monarch, don't you think he can do something about the problems that you're facing? I am sorry for this time, that you're passing through. I know I'm talking to somebody, and maybe many people, who are facing serious challenges. And springtime, it seems like forever from now, I know, but it isn't. The story of Esther dares us to believe that God, though hidden, is active, and he brings life out of broken things. The Apostle Paul 
was giving us a theme verse for the book of Esther. In that passage that we love so much, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know, Paul says, there's so many things we don't know, but we know this, we know that God works behind the scenes, above the fray, in the midst of it all, and he works for the good not for the comfort or for the ease, but for the ultimate good of every person who loves him. And he works in all things, all things. P-A-N-T-A is that Greek term, panta, from which we get words like panoramic or panacea or pandemic. He works in all things for the good. You are not a puppet in the hands of fortune and faith. You're not. You are secure in the hands of a living and loving God. You're not a random collection of disconnected events. Far from it. Your life is a crafted narrative from the author and finisher of our faith. And he who began a work in you is able to finish it. Relief will come. Will you be a part of it? That's the second part of the question or declaration from Mordecai. Relief will come, but who knows, Esther, that you have been made queen for this moment, for such a time as this. I have two grandchildren. You knew it was just a matter of time before I shared a grandchild story, right? The age is six and four, and they live just 10 minutes from us in San Antonio. Rose is six, and Max, yeah, another Max, is four. A few weeks ago, they spent the afternoon with us, and they spent most of the afternoon doing what they love to do, and that is looking for rocks. I tell my wife, we don't need to buy them toys. All they want are more rocks, but she still buys them toys. But we live on a few acres outside of San Antonio, and they were spending their afternoon just digging around out in the pasture looking for rocks. Their mother, Jenna, my oldest daughter, came to fetch them and we were visiting in the kitchen while the kids were outside when all of a sudden we heard Rose the six-year-old come running in the house saying 9-1-1-9-1-1 I guess she got that off a cartoon or something and we all turned and she said Max can't get up we ran out the back door, and I immediately assumed the worst. I thought Max had fallen down in a ravine. Maybe he'd been bit by a rattlesnake. I didn't know. Jenna, the mom, said, Rose, what happened? She said, well, Max filled his pockets with rocks, and his pants fell down. <laughs> and he can't get up. And my wife looked at me and said, pay attention, Max, this could be a sermon illustration. <laughs> and boy, was it a doozy. We found him on a little blacktop that we used to, to get up to the house. And sure enough, his pants had fallen all the way down to his ankles. And he was squatted down. 
And the only thing separating him from the asphalt were his Spider-Man underwear. (laughs) And he had taken rocks and put them in his front right pocket, front left pocket, back right pocket, back left pocket, and at some point the weight just called him to fall, caused them to fall down. And I said, Max, can you get up? He stood up, but the pants didn't follow. And I said, can you walk? And he said, no. I said, do you need some help? He said, yes. He was weighed down, and he couldn't move forward. What weights are keeping you from moving forward? What challenges of life have heavied your life to the point that you can't stand up. Our master, Jesus, said, now be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with the anxieties of life. Is your heart weighed down with worry, weighed down with fear, weighed down with struggle? To you and to me, our Father says, relief will come. And I have placed you here for such a time as this. I believe with all my heart that you and I have been placed in this generation on purpose. That in an era, in a season in which people are desperate for hope, God has his quorum of people. In a time in which anxiety is off the charts and depression is reaching unprecedented levels, and most tragically, The suicide rate is higher than it's been since the Great Depression. The world is desperately looking for a quorum of people who will rise up and not bow down before the Haman of fear. Would you be one of them? Would you be willing to inhale the faith that God promises and the power of His Holy Spirit to give you the courage that you need We need people like you. We need people like the ones who were gathered in war-torn London. No one would have blamed them for canceling the services on that Sunday morning. A bombing raid had roared into the city throughout the night, and London was simply a circle of fire. Buildings were destroyed. Even the walls of the congregation were flattened. Members arrived to find their pews covered with rocks and dust. The roof was gone, and several of the walls around the building had been demolished. No one would have blamed them had they turned around and went back home, but they didn't. In that destroyed and demolished church on that morning, They all gathered and stood in a circle and they began to sing hymns from their memory. One of them was the church's one foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Can you envision that circle of brave souls? Smack dab in the center of a global chaos, they worshiped. 
And they set their faith on an unfailing God. And that song was an admonition of sorts, a declaration of truth in the midst of a falling society. And that song may very well have saved the life of Ben Patterson. Mr. Patterson was an American war correspondent who had flown into London 48 hours before. And when the bombing raid hit, he was in a hotel just across the street from this church in downtown London. And throughout the night, he covered his head with a pillow And he later wrote, I prayed, if this is what modern civilization has brought us, then let me die. At some point he dozed off. And he awoke to the unexpected sound of a singing church. And he looked outside the window and he saw the congregation gathered in the rubble. And he later wrote, suddenly I saw something in the world that was untouchable. Something that had endured through the millennia. Something that was indestructible. The spirit and life and power of Jesus within his church. Bombs are still dropped. Fear still rages. Worlds still explode. Walls still collapse. Pandemics still rage, but in the midst of it all, God has his people right here in this church. I've heard the story of this church. I've heard how the church began because of a tragedy, the death of a baby. And how generation after generation after generation has stood in what was a moment of tragedy turned into a work that is 110 years old, am I correct? And look at you. Brave souls in the center of the city refusing to give up or give in. God bless you. God bless you. We need you. The city needs you, the country needs you, but most of all, God is calling on you and on me to be people of faith during a crazy, wacko time. Thank you for being faithful, and may you believe deep in your heart, relief will come, and you can be part of the deliverance. Thank you, Lord, for the great story of Esther, how you rescued your people. And thank you for the story of this church. We pray a blessing upon Pastor Rich, upon the entire uh, staff, all the elders. We pray a blessing upon this facility. We pray for angels to protect and for your Holy Spirit to direct. And we thank you and turn our hearts toward you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all the church said.